Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. Agsa, Ghana, Yatanga, Wantingi. My name is Tracy Locke, and I am the curator of Australian art. And it's my very great pleasure today to introduce our guest speaker to you, Dr. Ralph Bodie. And uh, Ralph is going to be speaking today as part of the Nature Festival, the inaugural Nature Festival, which is absolutely fantastic that the Art Gallery of South Australia can be a participant in the festival. And we are also really, I guess, a bit spoilt today to have Ralph speaking here for us. Ralph has just completed his doctorate in art history at the University of Adelaide and his major focus was on the global contacts of Hans Heysen. He's got a whole other list of, of strengths and, and great knowledge in many areas in Australian art history and I'm sure he will um, expand your knowledge about the wonderful Hans Heysen today. And so I will uh, hand over the microphone to Ralph. He'll speak probably for about 15, 20 minutes. And after that, there'll be an opportunity for some questions. And I'll also just foreshadow for you, next week's lunchtime talk will be based on Robert Dowling's painting on the yellow blade wall in the next room. It is a painting, Baptism of Christ. So next Tuesday at 12.30, I'll be giving a, a talk on that painting. But for now, it's time to hand over to the wonderful Ralph Bodie. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tracy. Now, when I was undertaking my, um, my PhD research, one of the real pleasures for me was being able to read a large selection of Hans Heysen's correspondence. Letters that he'd written to friends, family members, other art world contacts, and the insight that gave into his views about art in general. And one thing that keeps cropping up time and time again was not only his very deep-seated and sincere love of um, nature, both in terms of the Australian landscape and its wildlife, but also the real therapeutic value he seemed to get from the natural environment. During times of crisis in his life, whether it was due to a family bereavement, whether it was due to art world politics, or his disillusionment with world events, he would often turn to nature for comfort and find it had a really revitalizing effect upon him. And the reason I'm flagging this is because this is one of the themes and one of the rationales for this year's inaugural Nature Festival, is evaluating and acknowledging the psychological benefit that contact with nature has upon us. So the two works I'm going to talk about today are two real, really landmark works from Heysen's career. Mystic Morn from 1904 and then Red Gold from 1913. To start off with Mystic Morn, this was produced in 1904 in what was a really pivotal year in Heysen's career. He had just spent four years studying in art academies in Europe between 1899 and 1903. 
And this had been a relatively traditional, very academic style of training. And then having returned to Adelaide, he then needed to sort of really establish himself in the Australian art world in order to maintain his career as a professional artist. Now, interestingly, the date of his return to Adelaide was the 29th of September, 1903, which is exactly 117 years ago to this very day. So that's quite a nice coincidence. So one of the first things he did uh, very early on at the start of 1904 is he hired a studio in the top floor of the recently constructed Adelaide Steamship Company building in Curry Street. Now this was not only a space for him to work, it also allowed him the opportunity to teach pupils. Because at this stage of his career, he couldn't make his living from his brush alone. He needed the income that teaching brought. So this work was largely painted in that inner city studio, but the scenery itself is located near Meadows in the Adelaide Hills. And during the Easter break in 1904, he made a sketching trip up there and produced some exquisitely observed charcoal and watercolour preliminary studies, which then informed this final painting. Now, part of the reason this is such an important work in terms of his nationwide recognition is it received rave reviews when it was exhibited first in Sydney and then later in Adelaide. When it was shown in Adelaide in November, it was purchased by the Art Gallery of South Australia for 150 guineas, a not inconsiderable sum at that time. And then the following month, the trustees of the Art Gallery of New South Wales awarded it the Wynne Prize for landscape painting. And this was the first of nine occasions that Heysen would receive the Wynne Prize between 1904 and 1932. So this work and the positive recognition it received really marked Heysen out as this up-and-coming young artist for people to follow and really helped raise his profile. Now, at first glance, it may look quite different from um, what your, your typical Hans Heysen is seen to be. People tend to associate sort of massive gum trunks that look like these dramatic sort of columns rising against the blue sky and in the blazing sunlight. Whereas at this early stage of his career, he much preferred depicting young saplings. He, he enjoyed their grace, he enjoyed the sort of sinuous linearity of their form. And in fact, his friend and supporter, Maud Vizard Houlihan, christened him the poet of the sapling. And it's very lovely that I am standing next to this very impressive fireplace and surround, which was produced by Maud Vizard Houlihan uh, about 1907 because she was a very talented artist in her own right, working across a broad range of media. And it's lovely to see the, the two old friends reunited in this gallery display. So there are two interesting anecdotes about Mystic Morn. The first relates to advice that Heysen received from Harold Septimus Power, who was his friend and sometime painting companion. Um, Harold Septimus Power was particularly renowned as a painter of animals. He later became especially celebrated for his depiction of horses. Now, Heysen was having real trouble with the two cows that you see on the left wandering into the centre of the composition here. He couldn't find a way to sort of make them harmonise, to sort of be nicely integrated into the, the picture as a whole. 
until Power pointed out to him that it might be an idea to change the colour of the middle cow and to change it from red to black as we see it today. And as soon as Heisen made that change, everything naturally fell into place and he had that subtle tonal harmony that he was seeking to achieve. The second anecdote um, relates to the reaction of his mother when she first viewed this work up in the steamship company building studio. She took one look at it and her reaction was, well, but surely it's not finished, is it? And he asked her, well, why, is it, do you, why do you say that? To which she responded, but trees are always green, and you've painted yours yellow. And of course, the reason for that is he was very closely observing the effects of light and atmosphere as it affected um, the perception of, of the greenery. Here, we're not seeing a scene in bright midday sunlight, but under subtle morning light, which is being gently filtered through the canopy of leaves. And furthermore, the dominant colour note is in fact the dried yellow grass that you see in the foreground. So naturally that has had the impact of desaturating the leaves above and giving them this yellowy tinge. Now, as that story indicates, Heysen was very concerned about closely observing the, the Australian environment and the effects that things like light, dust, heat haze, had on people's perceptions of form and of space. At the same time, it would be a mistake to see him as someone who was exclusively concerned with Australian pictorial features. His art was very much grounded in European pictorial conventions, and he had a tremendous reverence for the, the grand European um, tradition. He was not at all an iconoclast. He wanted to see his, his work as adding and extending to that Western heritage. And in this particular work, we see his debt to, um, to the mid-19th century French artist Jean-Baptiste Camille Corot, who is particularly known for his, um, his subtle depictions of the landscape, where everything is very unified and there's quite a, a subtle color harmony but also in terms of these beautiful curving sort of arabesque forms of the, um, the foreground saplings. It's also very evocative of Art Nouveau, which was very much in vogue in the early 20th century. Now, two years after this work was painted, Heysen gave a talk here in this gallery called Observations on Art. And in that talk, he observed that in picture making, a balance must be established between the imitative and the decorative. He didn't believe the artists should solely be concerned with realism alone, but nor did he think they should go overboard with, with stylization. They had to find the happy middle ground. And he went on to explain, to know how much to conventionalize and yet retain the truthful appearance of nature can only be realized and learnt gradually by close study and comparison between nature and the works of the best masters. He wanted art students to both look towards nature and to look towards that established tradition. And you can see some of that reverence for tradition in the second work, Red Gold from 1913, where the compositional structure is very indebted to the art of Claude Lorraine, a 17th century French landscape painter. 
And AXA is very fortunate to own a painting by Claude Lorraine, which is currently on view in Gallery 12. And although the actual subject matter is very different, it depicts architectural ruins in the foreground rather than the, the trees we see here serving as a framing device, nonetheless, you'll notice the composition is quite similar. And actually, they have a very similar effect in the sky in terms of this light suffuse background framed by the, the more shadowy foreground elements. Heysen painted Mystic Morn as a 26-year-old man. This work is from 10 years later. So he's in his mid-30s and in quite a different position in his life. He's now married and the father of five children. Ultimately, he and his wife would have eight children in total. And the previous year, he had been able to purchase his own home, the Cedars in the Adelaide Hills. He was able to do that after a very successful Melbourne solo exhibition. And that was the home where he was to live for the remainder of his life until his death in 1968 at the age of 90. Just as importantly, soon after purchasing that property, he was able to have a purpose-built studio constructed. And that was completed in February 1913. And this magnificent large canvas is one of the first artworks that was completed in that beautiful studio, which is um, it's somewhere you can visit today. And if you haven't been up there and seen it, I thoroughly recommend the, um, the experience. In many respects, this work contrasts quite dramatically from Mystic Morn, not just in terms of the more solid gum trunks and the brighter light, but uh, in the fact that here we have this broad open vista. In Mystic Morn, the emphasis is very much upon the foreground, whereas here we're looking through this opening between the two gum trunks to the land beyond. The location of this particular scene is on the Handorf Mount Barker Junction Road, although Heysen has taken some artistic license with this work, as he often did in many of his paintings. The actual view of the peaks beyond would not have been visible from this particular spot where he's standing. Um, he's shifted them along a bit for aesthetic and dramatic effect. In 1934, about 20 years after this work was painted, he was asked by the art historian William Moore what he considered to be the really defining characteristic of the Australian eucalypt. And he responded, the design of the gum is expressed in the flow of its trunk and limbs. The design of European trees is mainly in their foliage. And I think that's, that's characteristic of the way he structured a lot of his compositions. The real emphasis is on the trunks of the trees. And in many works, just like you see here, he's actually chopped the trunks off at the top so that their foliage has been largely excluded. And it's very much the limbs the eyes focus upon. The light is much brighter and a much more important component of this particular work. It's either a late afternoon or an early evening scene. And that gives us this real sense of a moment in time, um, of the passing of time as we transition from daytime into evening. But in this particular canvas, he evokes time in a different way as well. And that's through depicting the full life cycle of the eucalypts. Um, again, writing to Moore in 1934, he stated, In all the stages, the gum tree is extremely beautiful. First from being a tiny sucker with its broad leaves, shooting up like fountains answering to the slightest breeze. At middle age, it becomes more sturdy, more closely knit and bulky. 
yet never losing grace in the movement of its limbs and the sweep of its foliage. In its prime, it is really a magnificent and noble tree, one which Theodore Rousseau would have loved, um, would have loved to have painted, just as the young gums would have filled the heart of Koro with absolute delight, so impregnated are they with the grace of form and colour. And in this particular work here, you can actually see all of those four stages of the life cycle. In the left-hand foreground, it's a bit hard to make out, but there are some very young plants just sprouting through the soil. Then on the far right side, just being cut off by the frame, you've got this beautiful curvy arabesque of a sapling. Behind that are the trees in a, a state of greater maturity. And then the really dominating notes are, of course, these two veteran gum trees that flank either side of this path, like columns or like a triumphal arch. And these are trees which have witnessed many seasons and many centuries, indeed. And so that really gives a sense of the passing of time. Now, there is actually a figure, a human figure in this work. You can just see um, to the left of that tree a, um, a drover leading the cattle home along the road. But in actual fact, the dominant character in this painting isn't the, the drover, but these two veteran gum trees. And a lot of people have commented that in Heysen's art, his trees occupy space as if they were people. They have that, that same kind of presence that the human figure often conveys. And I think the reason for that comes back to his European training between 1899 and 1903. As I mentioned, this was a very traditional academic training, and the main emphasis wasn't in fact on landscape painting, but upon life drawing, upon the study of the human form. And I think that very much conditioned his skills of observation and his ways of thinking about form. And that's in turn influenced how he locates his, his gum trunks in space, but also the, um, the really patient and intensive way that he scrutinised their very specific and individual forms. You know, many people have described him as being like a portraitist of gum trees and their individual specificity. And um, he has really rendered these trees with the same level of concern as someone might the physiognomy of um, someone's facial features. Now, some critics, particularly in the later 20th century, accused Heysen of exaggerating the scale of these gum trees. They said they couldn't possibly have been large, that he'd done that for dramatic effect. But I actually think that's a mistaken assumption because during the early decades of the 20th century, there were, were still some of these giant trees dotted around the South Australian landscape. Sadly, however, as the decades wore on, many of them fell victim to the axe. They were chopped down and sent to timber mills and cleared to create greater area for grazing. Uh, and I think Heysen's reverence for these large gums, these veteran gums, and his sorrow at their disappearance is reflected in this quote from 1945, when he was visiting the farm of his son in Kalangadu in the state's southeast. He wrote, It is now two weeks since we arrived in the land of big gums, those magnificent trees, majestic in structure, emblems of strength and virility. 
This country is the home of red gums, probably the finest in the state, or what is left of them. For the cruel axe has rung square miles of these one-time giants. Now they stand as, as gaunt skeletons, a reproach to our lack of foresight and wanton destruction. And from that statement, I think you get a clear sense of that Heisen, in addition to being a great lover of trees, was also a committed conservationist. One of the great benefits of having purchased his property at the Cedars is it enabled him to preserve the many trees that lived on that site and protect them from the axe. And both through his art and his writing, he very much encouraged other people to see the beauty and the value of native trees in the hope of their being preserved for posterity. And that actually sort of ties us nicely back to some of the key themes of this inaugural Nature Week. One major theme, of course, is the absolute central importance of conservation of the environment in our present age. Another one is the role of nature as a stimulus for art and creativity. And finally, as I flagged at the beginning, the really therapeutic value that nature can have upon our psychological well-being. And in both the life and the art of Hans Heysen, it's possible to discover all of those three characteristics. Thank you. <laughs> so I think we have a little bit of time for questions. Um, if anyone, oh yes, we have a question up the front. Uh, uh, from, from some of the reading that I've done about uh, Hans Heysen, um, I found that he was uh, concerned with the anthropomorphic heart in painting, that that was a great consideration of his and I think that you've basically kind of dealt with it around that topic but to actually pinpoint it um, as anthropomorphism is, is a bit of a tongue twister. Do you, yes, yeah. I absolutely agree with that sentiment of him frequently anthropomorphizing his gum trees and that's apparent again not only in his paintings but also in a lot of his writing in terms of the way he would refer to them as old friends, as veterans. He, he'd give works titles like The Lord of the Bush or The Warrior. There was actually one very beautiful quote. He wrote about this particular grove of saplings. Um, unfortunately, I don't have the exact wording with me, but where he talked about how beautiful he found them and how he'd been talking to them about his fiancée, Selma Bartels, and how much they wanted to see their rival because they perceived her as being a rival in terms of grace and beauty. Uh, are, are there any further questions? Oh, there is one at the back. Oh. Hans Heysen lived in Hurtle Square before moving up to the Cedars. Do you know of any paintings he might have done in the Adelaide Parklands or around the environs of the city of Adelaide? Um, he certainly maintained a studio in Hurtle Square he moved to Hurtle Square because that's where his mother-in-law lived. Uh, immediately after marrying his wife in late 1904, he couldn't yet afford to maintain a home of his own, so he and his wife moved in with their mother-in-law. In terms of scenes of the Adelaide Parklands, some have suggested that the watercolour Midsummer Morning, which is in the collection of the National Gallery of Victoria, may have been painted in... Um, in the parklands near um, East Terrace. 
I don't know if that's ever been conclusively verified or if people have simply assumed that because the, the kind of tree life in it is, um, is evocative of the, the very slender young pine trees that grow in that area today. I'm sure there are others, but that's the, the one that comes immediately to mind off the top of my head. Um, during the time he was living at Hurtle Square, however, he, he also made regular painting excursions into the Adelaide Hills. So I think that still remained his, his primary um, area of subject matter at this time. Oh yes, we have another question. Hi. Um, if you look at these two paintings, you would think really that this one came before this one, that the very classical Claude Lorraine painting came first, and then he graduated to this. I mean, was he actually painting for a market? Was he, you know, aiming to be a successful painter in the Melbourne market and make money? <laughs> uh, you're quite right that in terms of European art history and conventions, this is in many respects the more traditional painting and this um, reflects more recent aesthetic developments. I think in a work like this, he was very much responding to what other interstate artists were doing during the Federation era. Uh, in the period between Federation in 1901 and the outbreak of the First World War, there was a real resurgence of Australian nationalism and an emphasis upon um, large-scale artwork both in terms of the scale of the canvas, but also in terms of suggesting a broad vista and the monumentality of forms, whether it be monumental mountains or hills or monumental gum trunks. Whereas a work like this sort of follows on from the later Heidelberg School era, where people were very much painting more modest sort of slice of life type landscapes. He was very conscious of the art market. In fact, one of the reasons he's stereotyped as being very much just a painter of gum trees is because there was a lot of market pressure upon him to produce that subject. And often in his correspondence, it's clear that he wanted to work on other subjects, different aspects of the landscape, gentle rolling hills. He loved painting the Flinders Ranges from the late 1920s onwards. But he would get letters from his dealers saying, thank you for the works you've sent us. I've shown them to our clients but they'd rather wait until they can buy a more typical Hans Heysen. So unfortunately, he did become typecast, and I think that, um, that could be a bit limiting for him. Um, not so much during this early phase of his work, um, sort of right up to the 1920s, he was uh, much more diverse in his output than people give him credit for, but during the final 30 years of his life, um, he did, um, I think, feel under pressure to paint for the market a bit more, which is um, unfortunate. Thank you very much for your attention, and I hope you'll come and take a closer look at these two marvellous paintings. <laughs>